Our passage this morning will be starting in Exodus 4, chapter 18, and we will be looking at bits and pieces all the way to 6.13. So if you'll have your scripture ready, I will be doing that. And just a reminder, we're going through the book of Exodus, the life of Moses, and we are still prior to the main event. The main event's coming. That is the actual Exodus. It's coming. The plagues are next week, although you might be experiencing the flies this week. Um, I don't know what's going on, but they're a week early. Hopefully they'll be gone next week. Maybe we'll have some frogs. So we'll have, that's where we're going next week. But this week we're going to see Moses, if you'll remember, he was at the burning bush. God was proclaiming that he is Yahweh, the God of all creation, and he was going to rescue and is going to rescue his people. And Moses had a few concerns about the choice of the person. And last week, we saw Moses kind of not sure about this whole thing, right? And we've been talking about how that really mirrors our faith, that we are sometimes very boring in our Christianity. And oftentimes, our view of sanctification, that is, of walking with Christ, is very isolated. We don't grasp what Moses also was failing to grasp, that God was not calling him to go do it, but that God was going to do it, right? Moses was simply going to be the person whom he used to let Pharaoh know what was coming. So we're looking this week. Moses finally says, okay, I'll join in with Aaron, and we'll do this together. Um, And we're going to look now at this first attempt. Moses is going to go in to talk to Pharaoh in our passage, and it's not going to go well. So that's where we are. We're starting in verse 18 of chapter 4, and I'll be paraphrasing a bit. Now, I'll draw your attention to the Scripture, and then I'll paraphrase again. If you, I, mean, I would encourage you to be reading this as we go along uh, during the week, etc. But when we come here, especially starting next week, I can't read four chapters and so on and so forth. So if you would just kind of track as well, that would be awesome. Uh, chapter 4, verse 18. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase to verse 21. Moses returns to Jethro, his father-in-law, and says, Can I go? Can I go back to my people in Egypt and see what's up? Verse 21, and the Lord says to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you, what you, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Let me make a quick aside there. We're going to see a lot of hardening of the Pharaoh's heart. We're not going to talk about that this morning, but it'll be next week. There'll be lots of hardening of heart to talk about. Verse 22, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me so much for the Old Testament being boring. Verse 26, So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, Go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed 
And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. We're now at chapter 5. Moses goes in and meets with Pharaoh. Verse 1, Thus says the Lord, the God of Pharaoh, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please, let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence and with the sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. I will now paraphrase. Pharaoh turns to the taskmasters and says, I want you to make the, the Hebrew slaves continue making as much brick as they've been making, but no straw. Straw is a key ingredient in the brick making. The Egyptians have been providing that for them, and now they have to go gather that, but continue the level of production they've been at. You jump down to verse 15. Then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, Let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. And so now they start to realize what's going on, why the Pharaoh has changed. And they turn to uh, Moses and Aaron in verse 20. They met Moses and Aaron and were waiting for them And they came out from, as they came out from Pharaoh. And this is what the foreman said to them. The Lord took, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and as servants, and as his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So here's Moses. Shocked, didn't go the way he wanted. Verse 22, he turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. And you have not delivered your people at all. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 9, God retells, without getting angry, re-explains to Moses what he will do. And it's bold. So read that on your own. And in verse 10, he continues to Moses, Go in and tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land, of his land. And verse 12 is where we're going to finish. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, this account is inspired by your Spirit and delivered to us for very rich reasons that you would teach us your character and your love and your links that you go to to rescue us. And Lord, you even reveal the fact that we don't grasp what you're doing. And yet you still pursue us and love us and rescue us. And this morning, we come all these years later in the modern time, and we look at this passage that can somewhat seem old and archaic, and I pray through your Spirit that you would reveal to us the richness of this story. We may grow closer to you. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Probably all of us have had moments where we try to put things together with instruction manuals, right? As a father and a husband, how to put things together when you buy, you know, you go buy the cheap furniture, you got to build it yourself, or the bicycle. Recent, uh, I know one of the things when the babies were, the kids were little was the cribs. I would get to the very end of a crib and realize I'd done like something wrong and the whole door was on the wrong side and it, anyway, maddening. And then recently, we got a basketball goal and one of the things you had to do was take two of the longer sections. So you had one section already cemented in and you had to take two and just put them together and then jam it on like wood. And my dad and I would jam it and then we would measure it. And if it didn't measure what the instructions said, you had to keep doing it. So I think we went on for like 30, 40 minutes of getting exhausted. And finally, we, and the instructions weren't like, if it's close, that's fine. They said, if it's not close, call 1-800-something-something. You know, I'm like, no, I'm not, hello, I'm like three quarters of an inch off, what do I do? But it never quite got there. It never got to the level we wanted. And all we did, my dad and I said, you know what? These instructions are probably written for like idiots. You know what I mean? It's not written for people like us. We're smart. We know what we're doing. That was our way of not having to call. And we put it together and everything worked out fine. And it does make you wonder when you look at these instructions like, is this for everybody? Or is this for like that one person, the lawsuit person or whatever? And we do that with instructions and that is a weird intro. But God is given how many, if you read chapters 1 through 4, over and over, God is saying, here are the instructions. When you see Pharaoh, here's what you're going to do. And what we're going to find this morning is that Moses, in both of these passages, chapter 4 and 5, they look very different. Right? 4 is really dealing with Moses and Aaron going to the people. Chapter 5 is dealing with Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. But we're going to see a, a, something in, similar between the two, and that is they skip an important step. There's something missing. And remember, God is preparing Moses for this redemptive role he has. So a lot of this is building Moses' faith. And as we come this morning, I hope our faith is built because I think as Christians, our boring Christianity, our, our spongy Christianity, is often because we're missing a very key ingredient. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. So we're going to look at the landscape of redemption a false view of redemption, and then the right view of redemption. So here is this situation that's going on. As a recap, I know it's a lot of information. Moses and Aaron come together. They, they hug and kiss at the mountain of God. And then they go to the people of Israel. They do everything God told them to do. They show them the tricks. They meet with the elders. It's amazing, the miracles. And the people are excited, right? Then they go to Pharaoh. And they're thinking, this is awesome. And what does Pharaoh do? No. Totally shuts them down. They try one little more statement, shuts them down again, and then they go out and they're just lost. They don't know what to do. And meanwhile, God has told the people, the taskmasters who oversee the Hebrews, you're now going to make them do more work. And it's just overwhelming. And this is, this is the first point, but it's going to be the shortest one really built into the next two. Here's the... We're just kind of laying the trajectory. The, the Hebrews wanted rescue from slavery. They wanted to not make brick anymore. And when this attempt failed, and they were told it's going to get harder, they assumed the entire thing didn't work. Okay? And that's not the way it works in Christianity. I want to t- 
talk, I asked Doug, we, we sing this song, we sing it twice now from John Newton, I Ask the Lord. It's one of those songs that if you would just listen to the words over and over, it reveals the amazing beauty of redemption. It says, I ask the Lord that I might grow. Okay, this is John Newton wanting to grow in every grace and in love. And what you found, what he found was his life seemed to get harder, right? And finally, the last verse, why is it I trembling cried? Will you pursue the worm to death? And God says, it's in this way that the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break the schemes of earthly joy that thou might seek thy all in thee. So as we move forward in this discussion, understand, I believe the Hebrews and even Moses were thinking, how can we get all these people out of Egypt? And that's not what God's after. God is after bringing a people to himself to worship to form a new and living community that would go on through eternity. And so as we move into this discussion, I hope that will be the backdrop as we move forward. And that is our goal of redemption, that we would have a new and living relationship with God, Yahweh, through Christ. So, a false that was the landscape of redemption, but let's look at this false view of redemption. If I am correct, and I may not be, but I believe I am, I think that maybe Moses and Aaron didn't quite have their ducks in a row and they didn't quite do everything God said. I'm not blaming them for the response of Pharaoh. In fact, God predicted it. It's just part of the point. God said, when you go to Pharaoh, I'm going to harden his heart. And then Moses is like shocked that his heart was hardened. Right? But what else was missing? When you read through what God tells Moses to say, there's a couple of things missing. In 3.18, which is not this morning's scripture, I'll just tell you what it says. God says, and they, referring to the um, Hebrews, they will listen to your voice, which they did, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to them, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us and give the message with the elders. And you fast forward to chapter 5. It's just Aaron and Moses. There's no elders. Okay? Small difference. But there's another thing missing. God says, even in our passage this morning, in chapter 4, verse 22, or excuse me, verse 21, when you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles. Did you see any miracles in our passage in chapter 5? What, is ha- what happens in chapter 5? Moses and Aaron, they're on a high. The people from the Hebrews have accepted them. They said, let's do this thing. They are excited. So Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and they say, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. That they may worship us, worship God, worship me. And Pharaoh just stops them and says, I don't know who you're talking about. You never see them use any miracles. And as I was reading through that, it reminded me of like the James Bond movies where you always have that old guy who's like, here's a school ring or a tennis shoe that can like a blade will come out, or you, know, you twist this this way and the bomb will go off. It's like it's almost like that was the view Moses and Aaron had of these miracles. They're, they're there if you need them, right? They're there if you use them, but they didn't use them yet. And you have to wonder, why did they not think it would be harder with the Pharaoh, right? And I would say this, again, 
I don't, I'm not blaming Moses and Aaron, but these are some discrepancies in what they did versus what God said to do. And as we think about our own faith, what are some instructions we might be missing? Is there anything else in this passage that they missed that might give us insight into where we go wrong as well? I think the answer for me would be verse 20, uh, chapter 4, verse 23. And 22 and 23. Then you shall say, right? After doing the miracle. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that he may, be ser- that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. So here are Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh. He says no. They don't do miracles. They didn't bring the elders. But they didn't do the most important thing and say, then your firstborn son is going to die. I probably would have been nervous as well. But why don't they say that? Why is that not the message? There's this theme that we're seeing in chapter 4 and 5, and that the theme runs right through our hearts, and that is this. We don't understand what God is talking about. How many of you in your own Christian life have asked this question? Did Jesus really have to die for me to be a Christian? And couldn't he have just showed up and gave me all the information he did and, and not have to die? Do I really need that? And the biggest problem we have in our view of in our own personal walks with Christ is that we've minimized the need for the blood we see all through the Old Testament. It's there all through the Old Testament. Remember, this fly knows what I'm talking about. With Cain and Abel, what was the problem? Have you ever read that and thought, what was the big deal with Cain's? He offered grain and, and Abel offered a sheep. Cain grew grain and Abel had sheep. What's the big deal? Something about Abel understood there had to be spilled blood. And Christianity is a religion based on pure blood. And that has the stench of death to us. And so my concern of why we have boring Christianity is we don't know what to do with it, so we avoid it. We avoid the fact that we are presently bad enough to have to die for. And that leaves you two choices. On one hand, you ignore your sin and you just go on without thinking about it. Or you trivialize, on the other hand, you try to trivialize the gospel in such a way that you sort of use the right language, but again, you ignore your sin on the other side as well. Either way, you're trying to avoid repentance and walking with Christ right in the middle. And there's this need for death and we don't know what to do with it. Okay, is that in this passage? I want to do my best Jim Gaffigan impersonation and do the whole, is that really in there? Is he making that up? Okay, do you all like Jim Gaffigan? Anybody? What, where, am I, where is this found in this passage, chapter 4? Is there anything that jumps out at you? This idea that Moses didn't quite grasp the full need of, a, of someone dying to become a holy person, to become one with God. There's this really awkward place. We all saw it. Most of us read these passages and we come to these things and we go, I don't know what to do with that, so I'll move on. Listen to verse 24. Ready? At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That jumps out. If you read Exodus and you're doing an outline, burning bush, 
Moses doesn't want to. God convinces. Aaron shows up. God wants to kill Moses. Moses and Aaron, they show up. I mean, what in the world is going on? Now, scholars debate on the actual who is the him. Okay? If you read it in the Hebrew, which I don't do normally, but uh, if you were to read out loud, it would just the way it reads is at a lodging place on the way the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched him. We aren't told if it's Moses, right? And so scholars have sort of debated that. And I will say this, either way you go, with whether it's the son or Moses who's being sought to be put to death, either way you have an equal argument. Somebody cherished is going to die. Right? And, and the best explanation that I read, and this is going to be the way I'm, I'm taking as a pastor, I have the freedom to say this is my interpretation. You can go study it. Talk to Thomas later, and then come up with your own your own interpretation. But one of the best uh, commentaries I thought on it said this. And by the way, they were right down the middle. Moses is probably okay. So Moses is Hebrew. Zipporah is Midian. Her dad's the Midianite priest. So she sort of kind of come into this Hebrew religion, not really. And they didn't sacri- they didn't circumcise the son. And they've had a debate. Maybe they've had a discussion. Maybe Moses really urged her, but she won the day. We don't know. And on the way, at some point, he goes into like a catatonic type health-ish fit of some kind. But she knows. However it went down, she realizes this is because of the circumcision. God is pursuing Moses to death. And so, she's, I won't do any hand gestures, but she circumcises the son, takes the, the foreskin and lays it at Moses' feet. Doesn't throw it, but rather makes the blood on his feet. It's an application of blood. And then she says these words, and it's very tempting to read them as sort of a scornful statement, but there might be some affection in these words. She says, surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. And this entire episode looks forward to the Passover. right? And what makes the Passover so amazing is not that the Hebrews are set free and the Egyptians firstborn die. It's that everybody, every but he's going to lose their firstborn if the blood is not on the door. It's not partial. God's justice is not partial. And it's not even partial to Moses. And it's not even partial to you and I. We could have had the greatest conversion moment of all time, but the moment we begin to live like it's up to us, I'm not suggesting we lose our salvation, nor does this passage say Moses would not have gone to heaven, but I would say we're not walking with Christ. We're not living in light of the Gospel. Right? There has to be this blood, and we have to recognize it. And what this shows is the bigness and the beauty and the majesty of our God. And isn't that what we want? We don't think we want that because that overwhelms us, but we do need that. Abraham Kuyper has this term, of course it's translated, but he calls us spongy Christians. He was in the 19, early 1900s, the prime minister of the Netherlands. He was also a great Calvin theologian. And he says, in kind of a um, paraphrase, he says this, modern Christians are too soft because we don't know how righteous God is. Our objection, meaning Kuiper's objection, is not that you and I deny the reconciliation through his blood, but rather that we are silent on the question 
of God's right. We are made by God, and God owns us. He has a right to us. We belong to Him. So the reason that we are soft and spongy is that you and I, we all, we, we, we are conscious of our own rights. We live in a, a society that demands our rights, don't we? And we let that bleed into our Christianity. And so often what I think we do is we take the grace of God and we say, thank you, I, I kind of deserve it because I, I prayed a prayer and I came to church and I believe after all. And then we kind of stop there and we're not sure what to do with that belief. We're not sure what to do with that grace. I think we kind of have half a gospel sometimes. I want to draw our attention to Romans 6, where Paul says very famously, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? I think many of us would say, maybe. Possibly. Why does Paul say, by no means? The whole Part of his argument is on the fact that we have been buried with Christ in his death and raised with Christ in his resurrection. In other words, we have new blood running through our veins. Is that what you think? Is that your belief? Or has the gospel become this sort of cosmic shield to any feelings of guilt? That is not the view of the gospel. My goal is not that you would feel guilty, but that I would feel guilty. Rather, that we wouldn't follow our culture's sort of progression into this idea that we should never feel guilty. My goal is that we take the guilt we feel and not feel shame, that is, redefining how we see ourselves and how God sees us, but rather that we would run to the cross freshly. Paul goes on to say, What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourself to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin, all of us, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves of righteousness. That doesn't mean, here's what our flesh does with that. Okay. So here I'm a Christian and I'm no longer a slave of sin. So now what I have to do is be really, really, really good. Isn't that kind of what we fear sometimes? That's not what Paul is saying. Over and over again in the Scripture, we reinterpret what God is clearly saying through the lens of our own flesh. We're always trying to go back, when you said this a minute ago, Doug, we're always trying to make things go back to a work righteousness. Right? So what is Romans 6 saying? What does it mean to be a slave of righteousness? What is happening with Moses? Over and over again, what we see is God is saying, I'm rescuing, rescuing you from sin and bringing you into righteousness. Where in Exodus, at this point, where does he tell the Hebrews about conduct? about the way they should live. He hasn't yet. We're going to get there. But it's all about personal rescue. God loves you. God has rescued you. God has provided these sacrifices that point to something else, right? Because He is yours and you are His. You are going to be taken out and you're going to worship and you're going to sacrifice. 
Does our view of our needs include that? Do you have any sense, and do we have any sense that we need something? Okay. So where does this boring Christianity come from? Where do we get our small Jesus? We do two things simultaneously. We lower God's standard. Okay? We turn what we believe, who we believe God is, into a few simple steps. This is what legalism does. Right? You have, have to look at your own internal dialogue. What are the things you have to do in your mind to sort of be doing well? Those are sort of your things. Everybody has their own. Right? Is it in the church? In the scripture? Uh, maybe you, in your mind you have to be married, or you have to have kids, or you have to talk a certain way, or dress a certain way. Maybe there's a million different laws, and we have those. Right? And we think we have God, but it's a character. Secondly, we trivialize our own sin. Right? We, 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 the depths of our sin are so overwhelming that we sort of say, I'm a, we use words like, I transgress, I'm a, I'm, I, sometimes I sin, right? Maybe I struggle with this and this. And we sort of caricaturize our sin. And by doing that, we're lowering God's standards. We're raising kind of who we really are to making the gap very small and manageable. We have a very small cross. And here Moses is on his way, and God shows up, and he says, I'm putting you to death. Because you need the blood. You need the blood of a son. So Jesus provides that blood. Jesus has come we might rest in Him, have our full identity who He is. This song again, I'm going to come back to it. It's just too good. And John Newton's a better preacher than I am. Do you ask the Lord that you might grow? He says, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace. I think for many of you, I would argue, I would assume you don't pray that prayer. I really would. No offense. Most Christians don't want that. So that's something to think about. But God, taking this prayer seriously, ratchets it up, right? And what does he say? I had hoped in some favored hour that he would answer my request, because, hey, I'm one of the few that pray this prayer, right? That he would subdue my sins and give me rest, and instead he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart. And I would ask you, do you ever feel the hidden evils of your heart? When you read saints like this, when you read scripture, why do they all speak of it like this? The more I get close to God, the more I see my sin. Are you trying to get to a Christianity where you quit seeing your sin, where you have it together, where you have your quiet time, and you have your behavior, and you have your character, and you don't really see any evil in your heart any longer? If you do that, you're no longer longing for the blood of Christ, right? And yet he says, as I read already, I'll read it again. It was in this way, the Lord replied, I answered prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I implore, from self and pride to set thee free. And break my break your schemes of earthly joy, and that's convicting for me. Because I have all of these schemes I'm trying to come up with where I can have a great life here. But I'm not doing it in Christ, right? I'm not doing it because I want to walk closer to the Lord. And he says, he's breaking these schemes that thou may seek thy all in him. 
And is that your longing? Is that what you want? That is what he was calling Moses to. He was calling the Hebrews to come out of Egypt, not just to have some freedom, but to have intimacy with the Father, to walk with Yahweh. And ultimately, he would, that would lead to Christ, who then comes and gives us his own blood to have union with him. Is that your longing? Okay, practically, what do you do with this? First of all, I'm going to say something I don't say. I often talk about sins that we don't know about. But I have a feeling a lot of you have really bad sin patterns you do know about. And my guess is, those sin patterns, you're sort of hoping you'll have victory there, maybe. And then you'll get close to God. You completely reverse the God. Over and over, what is it going to do? Confess the sin. I have no way out. I'm in Egypt. I'm in slavery. I have this sin pattern. I have, I've got to go gather straw now. It just got worse. Lord, rescue me. Are you confessing? Are you approaching your Savior with that hope? Or are you sort of just ignoring that sin pattern? It could be sexual sin. I mean, that's a huge one in our case. It could be sin of money. Just your own lust for money and power and strength. It could be you're longing for some sort of a relationship. You guys know what I'm talking about. Right? How do you confess it? And is your goal to find freedom from it? I find that when I look at the sins in my life, I'm not so much longing for Jesus as I am for a rescue from him. Aren't we just like the Hebrews? I don't want you, Yahweh. I just don't want straw. I don't, I'm tired of making grit. And he's like, I've got something hard to do He's going to ratchet it up. So our longing is for intimacy with him. Is that your longing? It's not. We sing these songs. We preach this every week. And my fear is, I really do, I'm afraid that we go out of here and we live this boring Christianity because we're just so afraid of being honest with the fact that we don't even know we care to have that relationship with God in you. Confess that. Let that be the beginning point. Lord, I don't even know that I want to know you better. Lord, I'm scared of you. I'm scared that if you come in and have your way with me, I'm going to lose control. Forgive me. I lust for control of my own life, and it's something I can't have. Are you afraid of giving your life? And I'm talking to Christians. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, that's a great prayer. We need to turn our hearts to Christ because that's why He came. And we need to quit playing this game that our goal is to look a little bit better than the next person. The goal is to have everything turn on Christ and to abide.